0: It's good to connect with you from here in Vancouver. I've long known of and admired the ministry of Bayview Glen Church. I've also been deeply impacted by the writings of one of your previous pastors, A.W. Tozer. I'm also familiar with and and thankful for the ministry of another one of your previous pastors, Nelson Annan. And in more recent times, it's felt like a gift to become acquainted with Lucas and Sean during this time of transition for you. I was raised primarily here in Canada, but I was actually born in Tokyo, Japan. But I ended up marrying a woman from Japan, and and so we're back on a fairly regular basis. And when I'm back in Japan, I sometimes wonder to myself, What would my life have been like if we hadn't moved away when I was so young? What if I had not only been born in Japan, but raised here as well? And I think about all the pressure that would have been on me to get admitted into the right preschool. Yes, preschool. And all the pressure I would have faced to pass the exam to get into the right elementary school. And eventually the right university. And then the pressure... To get picked up by the right company. And so I breathe this sigh of relief as I say, thank God I wasn't raised in such a relentless rat race. But if I'm honest with myself, having been raised here in Canada, I realized that I haven't quite escaped the pressure to achieve. When I was younger, I felt the pressure to achieve in sports. And then during another season, I felt the pressure to perform as a student academically. And then when I was working in the corporate world, I felt the pressure to deliver. And even as a pastor, I feel the pressure to get things done. Now, of course, a- ambition is a good thing. But when we start to feel pressure to achieve in order to prove to ourselves or someone else that we are enough, then life can start to feel heavy, like a burden. And so if you have ever felt the pressure to achieve, whether in school or at work or in a relationship or some other sphere of life, Jesus has some very good news for you. He says, in Matthew 11:28 to 30, these words of invitation for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this message, I want us to explore how we can live a life of significant contribution, but not one that is motivated by this intense pressure to somehow prove that we're enough, but one that is energized by a deep sense of gratitude that we are already accepted and in fact cherished by the one who matters most. And we'll be looking at two or three practices that can awaken us in a fresh way to this sense that we are truly loved by God. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Literally, I will rest you. And so if you are feeling wearied or burdened in any way because of the pandemic or for other reasons, this invitation is for you. Jesus says, come to me and I will rest you. How so? He says, by placing my yoke upon you. Now, when Jesus says he wants to place his yoke upon us, I hope it's obvious enough that he's not referring to an egg yolk, a yellow, you know, round thing. Uh, He is referring by yoke to a wooden bar that was placed across the back of the neck of an ox, enabling it to more easily pull a heavy load. And so here, Jesus is comparing you and me to an ox. You know, it's not very complimentary. uh, If we're Canadian, maybe we would prefer to be compared to an industrious beaver, our national animal. Or if you're from America, the States, maybe you would prefer to be compared to a soaring eagle. But Jesus neither compares us to an industrious beaver nor to a soaring eagle, but to an ox. Not very flattering, but it's apt because like an ox, You and I are weighted down by all kinds of burdens. Now, when Jesus's original hearers first heard these words of invitation, they would have felt weighted down by concerns like, will I have enough money to feed my family as they were living in a farming-based subsistence economy day to day? Parents would have been concerned about the health and well being of their children in a first century world where most newborns did not live past the age of 20. Today, we also have concerns about finances. We have concerns about the health and well being of our loved ones, especially during COVID. But we also carry a burden that people in Jesus's first century world would not have felt as heavily. We can carry the weight of wondering, have I accomplished enough? Am I enough? And this burden would not have been felt quite as heavily by people in Jesus's ancient world because their station in life was largely determined by the families they were born into and their social circumstances. But we live in a world, whether we're in the GTA or somewhere else, where we can rise socially. We can rise socially through education or our careers or some social connections. That's a good thing, but what if in this world where we can rise, we don't become really successful? What if we don't become the people that we or someone else projected we would one day become? We can feel like a failure. We can feel like a loser. And so if you have ever felt the pressure to achieve, to somehow show that you are enough, then Jesus's words of invitation are for you as he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. How so? He says, by placing my yoke upon you. Now, some of you are saying, I, I, don't, I don't need a yoke to rest me. I, I need a massage. I need to spend some time at a spa or I need to be able to get away on an all expense paid vacation to the Caribbean and come back without any quarantine. But Jesus says, no, if you want to rest deeply in your body and in your soul, come to me because the yokes that you are wearing they don't fit you very well. They chafe against the back of your neck and they, they weigh you down. And some of the heaviest yokes of all are the yokes of people's expectations of us or what we perceive of them. And Maybe the heaviest yoke of all is the yoke of our own self-expectation. And we can get caught up into if-then kind of thinking. Maybe when we were younger, maybe we are young right now, we think, if only I can get accepted to this school, then I'll feel better about myself. Or perhaps we think, if only I can be hired by the right company or organization, then I'll, I'll feel good about me. Or maybe we think, if only I can buy a house here in the Toronto area or wherever, then I will feel all grown up. But according to Sean Acor, a psychologist who has taught at Harvard, this if-then kind of thinking cannot be supported by science because every time we achieve a goal, our brain moves the goalpost as to what success looks like. So you get admitted to the right school, the goalpost changes, it moves. Now you need to get good grades. You get hired by the right company. The goalpost moves. Now you need to stand out in the company. (laughs) Miracle of miracles. You're finally able to buy a house. The goalpost moves. Now you want a bigger house or a house in a better neighborhood. Our sense of being enough is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. Have you ever seen the movie Cool Runnings? Some of you have. It's loosely based on the true story of Jamaica attempting to field their first ever bobsledding team. Yes, Jamaica fielding a bobsledding team for the Calgary Winter Olympic Games in 1988. And there's a scene in the movie where the coach, who has won two Olympic gold medals himself, walks into a room and he sees that his star bobsledder, Darius, is carefully studying the bobsled course. And Darius feels the weight of the world on his shoulders because he thinks if only I can win a gold medal at these Olympic games, people will finally see me as successful and they'll respect me. And so the coach, who, as I said, has won two gold medals himself, walks into the room, sees the pressure that Darius is under, and he looks at him and he says, Darius, winning a gold medal is a wonderful thing. But if you're not enough without the gold medal, you won't be enough with it. If you're not enough without the gold medal, if you're not enough without the gold medal, whatever the gold medal represents to you, you won't be enough with it. Our sense of being enough isn't something we achieve. It's something we receive gift. It's not something that we create for ourselves. It is something that is conferred upon us by another. And Jesus says, if you want to rest deeply, not only in your body, but in your soul, put my yoke upon your shoulders or allow me to place it upon your shoulders. What does Jesus mean when he speaks of yoke? It's obviously a symbol for something else. In our text, it's not really immediately clear. And when a word or a phrase in scripture is not immediately clear, sometimes the best way to figure out its meaning is by looking at the larger context. We scroll back about five verses and we see that the context of these words of invitation are ones where Jesus is just exulting in the wonder of his father's love for him. He says, Father, I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have revealed your truth, not so much to the best and the brightest, but to children and to those who approach you with the humility of a child. And Jesus is just basking in the wonder of his father's love for him. According to the pastor and New Testament scholar, Daryl Johnson, the yoke that Jesus wants you to wear is the yoke that he himself wore. And the yoke that Jesus himself wore was the yoke of his father's perfect and unique love for him. And so the yoke that Jesus wants you to wear is the yoke of your perfect father's unique love for you. And I know this sounds really simple, but when you wear the yoke of your perfect father's love upon your shoulders, it will change the way you move through the world. Uh, Let me offer a personal uh, example here. A number of years ago, when I was single, I I traveled back to Japan to connect with a friend of mine about a very private matter that he wanted to disclose to me. And as we were talking, he mentioned the name of Sakiko, one of his friends from uh, University Days. And I blurted out, you know, I've always, um, I've always liked, liked her. And he says, my friend says, well, she's still single and beautiful. You should call her. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not here to socialize. And he pulls out his phone and he says, no, 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 you really should call her. You know, she had such a good impression of you. She asked about you. She would just love to hear you. She remembers you so well. And so he's calling. The phone is ringing. And I, I, I grab the phone. She answers. And I said, hi, um, hi, Sakiko, um, this is, uh, this is Ken from, uh, from, from Vancouver, silence on the other end of the line. And then she asks, are you the guy who went to Berkeley? I'm like, no, no, that was Jeff. You know, she had no idea who I was. She had completely forgotten me. And I ask, um, uh, I don't know if you have any plans uh, on Wednesday, but would you like to go out for coffee with me? And she says, actually, I'm, I'm busy on Wednesday." And I don't know what came over me in that moment, but I said, I don't know what your plans are, but can you change them? And I wasn't thinking about this in the moment, but I later realized that uh, in Japanese culture, it's very difficult to say no to someone twice in a row. So the cultural norms were working in my favor. All things work together for good. Actually, that verse has nothing to do with my dating life. So we end up going out for coffee. Ah, It doesn't go so well. But we do end up getting married. Eventually, of course, that is. But that's not the point of the story at all. Um, You know, most of you don't really know me. We're just connecting for the first time today. Uh, And so you wouldn't know this. But I am terrified of rejection, especially in the context of romantic pursuit. And so I look back and I wonder how was it that I was able to put myself out like that for you know possible rejection and you know heartache and you know, some humiliation and uh, I think a big part of the answer is that I was slowly learning to wear the yoke of the father's love across my shoulders. And you know when you start to believe that you really are cherished by the one who matters most, your creator. There's something about that knowledge that makes you a little bit more bold, a bit more courageous, a bit more willing to take a risk, whether in a relationship or some other kind of venture. And it's not like you know rejection or failure will no longer sting at all. But when you know that you are deeply loved by your maker, there's something about that that makes you a little more daring and a little bit more resilient. Wearing the yoke of the Father's love across your shoulders will change the way you move through the world. I've written this book called Survival Guide for the Soul, How to Flourish Spiritually in a World That Pressures Us to Achieve. And in this book, I've listed some eight survival habits of the soul that awaken us to a sense of being loved by God. I'll just cover two or three of them in this message. One of those survival habits for the soul is meditation. Now, I'm a very easily distracted kind of guy. You know, at any given time, I can feel like there are a hundred and 37 monkeys jumping around in my head. And so at some point in the morning, I simply take some time to sit and breathe deeply. I will breathe in deeply through my nose and then exhale slowly. Breathe in deeply. Exhale slowly. And then I'll start to wonder how much time has gone by anyway. So I'll reach for my phone, not to check my messages, but to open up a free app called Centering Prayer. It has a timer, so I'll set it for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Hit begin. A chime sounds as though i were in a monastery being summoned by a bell to pray i continue breathing in deeply exhaling slowly breathing in deeply exhaling slowly and then i start to think of all the things i ought to be doing my my to-do list so I'll reach for my Bible, or maybe I'll just go with a text that I'm, I'm familiar with in the Psalms, like the one from Psalm 46, where the psalmist affirms, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Let me just change the scenery for a moment. Uh, As I mentioned, I uh, live in Vancouver, not that far from the ocean, and I love being on the water, whether it's kayaking or sailing on a friend's sailboat. I don't own a sailboat myself. And there have been times when I've been out at sea and I have seen salmon jumping out of the water at a 45-degree angle. There have been rare occasions when I have seen pods of dolphins and even whales. And there are times when I'm seated in the presence of God and I feel upheld by the beautiful mystery that upholds the whole world and happens to also uphold me. There have been other times when I've been out at sea and I've noticed Styrofoam cup bobbing up and down on the surface of the water or an empty Coke bottle or a film of oil on the surface of the water. And there have been times when I've been in meditation and anxiety rises up within me or a feeling of frustration or anger or envy towards someone or a painful memory. And I lift these up to God. (laughs) And I feel lighter, I feel freer. And then when the 15 or 20 minutes are done, chime sounds, I open my eyes and when I'm done, I almost always feel just a little bit more relaxed and throughout the day, more focused and aware of Jesus' presence in my life. Meditation is a powerful way to wear the yoke of the Father's love on my shoulders. It's a survival habit of my soul. And then another uh, survival habit of the soul that I write about is a prayer of gratitude. Uh, In the evening, I will open up Another app, this is also a free app called Reimagining the Examine. And it plays a little bit of music. And this app invites me to pray this this ancient 500-year-old prayer called the Examine as it calls me to look back over the past 24 hours or so and give thanks to God for two or three things that I'm grateful for. And so if I would do this right now, right on the spot, even as we're uh, connecting, um, I would think of a run that I had yesterday afternoon before dinner with our 12-year-old son, Joe. It was a beautiful day here in the city of Vancouver. And then uh, for dinner, we ended up having crab. Uh, We had gone fishing over the weekend. It's sort of crab fishing season here in the city. And so we had some crab. It was was, was good. And then uh, I'm just really grateful to be able to connect with you, you good folks at uh, Bayview Glen. I wanted, honestly, to speak at Bayview for a long time and maybe next time I'll be able to come in person and we can meet uh, face to face. So, um, you know, I know this sounds really, really simple, but studies coming out of places like Harvard uh, point out that if you will take, you know, three to five minutes a day to identify a few things that you are grateful for, This very simple practice will change the way you move through the world. One of my colleagues, Edlyn, was in the market for an Austin Mini Cooper. And as she was thinking about buying one, she began to see Austin Mini Coopers everywhere, around work, around her neighborhood. It wasn't like the the dealer was thinking, she's on the fence. We're going to flood her area with these little cars from Britain. No, she was primed to think about them So it seemed to her that there were actually more of these Austin Mini Coopers on the road. And if you engage in a simple daily gratitude exercise, it will start to seem like more good things are coming into your life, even though that may not objectively be true. And as you associate those good things with the Father's love for you, you wear the yoke of the Father's love across your shoulders. And so a prayer of gratitude, a prayer of examine, is a survival habit of the soul. Let me offer just one more survival habit insofar as this message is concerned. And that is Sabbath. I know that if you live in the GTA, you probably work really hard Folks from Toronto, in in, in my impression anyway, uh, work really hard. And and some of you border on being workaholics. And one of the great gifts of the Sabbath, which ideally is a 24-hour period of time where you cease working or doing anything related to work, is that it is a powerful reminder that your identity isn't primarily formed by making bricks for Pharaoh. But your core identity comes from being a cherished, a much beloved daughter or son of the living God. I mentioned our 12-year-old son, Joey. You know, he's not, a, he's not especially productive. He loves to play with his toys, he doesn't like you know, cleaning up his room. He makes no money for our household economy. Uh, But he loves money. At his 10th birthday party, I remember him opening up a birthday card. Uh, This is obviously uh, pre-pandemic days. uh, And uh, out wafted out this cash bill. And Joey looked at his friend and said, thank you. I love cash. So he loves money, but doesn't make any. And uh, several years ago, uh, he and some other rowdy boys in his class were being sent out of class for um, a time, you know, and, and, and periodically. Uh, he's doing better in school now. But I say that to say this, we don't love Joey because he is productive or not, or because he can earn money for our household, or because he's doing really well in school or not so much. We love our son because he's breathing, because he's got a pulse, because he's alive, because he's our boy. And when you honor the Sabbath. It is this powerful reminder that you are cherished and loved, not because of what you produce or because of how you perform, but just because you are God's girl, because you are God's boy. And so Sabbath is a beautiful way to wear the yoke of the Father's love across your shoulders. It is a survival habit of the soul. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're gonna be um, looking at some of the practices of uh, this book, Survival Guide for the Soul. Uh, It's available wherever books are sold, online or elsewhere. And 100% of all of the royalties, all the proceeds, go to World Vision and to similar missions that work with vulnerable children. And so I don't receive a penny from my writings. We've been able to give away some you know, $400,000 uh, from um, writings and, and sales thus far. And so um, if you pick up a copy to follow along with the next couple of messages, uh, uh, the proceeds are, are going to a good cause. Let me close with the with, uh, story. When I was making the transition from the corporate world to the world of vocational Christian ministry, I enrolled in something called the Arrow Leadership Program, founded by Leighton Ford, a Christian leader originally from Ontario, and the brother-in-law to the late Billy Graham. And I remember when uh, we, 25 or so, uh, gathered together for the very first time as an Arrow cohort, as an Arrow class, And someone later said, we were like fighter pilots in the movie, Top Gun. We were sort of sizing each other up as rivals. I was the youngest one in the class, or one of the youngest, uh, certainly the least experienced in Christian ministry. And I was eager, in fact, desperate to impress the founder of Arrow, Leighton Ford. I remember one time in class raising my hand real high, and I was able to summarize an obscure book written by an MIT professor. I was trying really hard to impress. But as a young Christian leader, I I stumbled and and fell. I, I got into a conflict with someone that I was working with because of my own emotional immaturity. I was in a dating relationship where we were struggling to maintain certain boundaries. But this is what I discovered in my failure that Leighton Ford's acceptance of me was not dependent on my performance or what I could do for his ministry, I found out in my failure that he loves me just because, for no apparent reason, the love is just there. You know, fast forward 20, what, 25 years later, more. You know, we've become close friends and I feel more at home in my skin, in Leighton's presence than ever before. I can laugh in his presence. I can cry in his presence. I feel totally at home. And it's not like I no longer want to make something out of my life and my ministry in part to honor his investment in me, but it no longer comes out of this anxious, desperate need to prove myself but it comes from a place of deep gratitude that comes from knowing that I'm already accepted and loved by him. And this is what I want for you, my sisters and brothers at Bayview Glen. I want you just to go for it insofar as you're life for God and your life for the world. I want you to do your very best and just go for it. But not out of an anxious need to prove that you are enough, but out of a place of deep gratitude and rest that comes from knowing that you are already accepted, in fact, cherished by the one who matters most. Let's pray together. You know, I've been talking about being a daughter or son of God. And if you're having trouble connecting with that language for some reason, I want you to know that 2,000 years ago, God became a human being in Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and then died on a Roman cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven. And in your heart, you can turn to Jesus and say, I don't understand it all, but would you forgive my sins and would you make me part of your family? Make me a daughter of God or a son of God, and he will. And if you've just prayed that prayer or if you've given your life to Christ in the past, hear these words of invitation for you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will rest you. And so perhaps in your heart, in your spirit, pray, Jesus, place your yoke upon me for it is his yoke that rests you. His yoke will not weigh you down. His yoke will lift you up. It'll make you lighter and freer. And so may this be so for you. May he place the yoke upon you that sets you free.